KPOA News. From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Nancy Marshall-Genzer, Senior Reporter for Marketplace. Welcome, Nancy and Cindy. Hello. I thank you. Well, here are the issues. President Joe Biden welcomed the opportunity to speak candidly and straightforwardly to his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, about issues including human rights, economic competition, and Taiwan in their first one-on-one -on -one meeting since Biden took office. A senior U.S. official said the leaders had a healthy debate. Biden also stressed the importance of China fulfilling its commitments under a trade pact negotiated with Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump. President Biden hosted a ceremony on Monday at the White House where he signed a bipartisan $1 trillion infrastructure bill that earned final passage in Congress after months of negotiations. The legislation calls for massive spending across the country to address crumbling roads and bridges, improve rail service, and expand public transportation. House Democrats are hoping to pass the $1.75 trillion social spending package, giving the party a much-needed jolt at a time when it needs it most. According to a new ABC News Washington Post poll, 41% of respondents approve of Biden's work in office 10 months in, compared to 53% who disapprove. The approval figure is down from 50% in June and 44% in September. Inflation, a central economic issue of 2021, is dragging down President Biden's approval ratings and fueling discontent among Americans. The price of food, gas, and other goods has risen to 6.2% over the last year, and shortages and other inconveniences are side effects of the problem. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken began a three-nation tour of Africa that includes Kenya, Nigeria, and Senegal. Blinken will meet with Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta, who just returned from Ethiopia, to discuss that country's worsening security in its Tigray region. Steve Bannon, once a White House advisor to former President Trump, appeared before a judge in preparation for entering a plea while facing criminal contempt charges for noncompliance with a subpoena from the House of Representatives Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol building. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Nancy, I will start with you. President Biden and his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, met one-on-one -on -one virtually. Both held their positions in various issues, but observers say they did turn down the heat between the U.S. and China. But one major issue is China lagging on a commitment to buy $200 billion more in U.S. goods and services. So why hasn't China followed through on this commitment? The administration wishes it knew that. Part of it is logistical, I will say. This agreement, it's called the Phase 1 Trade Agreement, it was signed with the Trump administration back in January of 2020. And the Trump administration set the bar very, very high on how much China had to buy from the U.S. in goods and services. Just look at natural gas, for example. So the U.S. has something like six natural gas terminals that can convert natural gas into liquefied natural gas that can be shipped internationally. 
And for China to live up to this agreement, it would have to increase its imports of U.S. natural gas by 400%. And one person I talked to said there's no way those six U.S. ports could increase their production by that much to reach that target. So part of the problem is these targets were just set too high. Also, the two leaders discussed North Korea, Afghanistan, Iran, and other areas where they frequently disagree. Cindy, at this point, where does the U.S. stand on relations with China, and what does China want from the U.S.? Both sides put out positive statements after this virtual summit, long, you know, more than three hours. Some Chinese headlines were really exuberant. And one of the key issues here was, of course, Taiwan. And some headlines in China were, oh, President Biden is saying that he recognizes that Taiwan is not independent. And then afterwards, there was some back and forth on that with President Biden explaining the U.S. position, saying, wait a minute, that's not quite what I said. He underscored that the U.S. remains committed to the one China policy. And then on Tuesday evening, Biden said, Taiwan has to decide, not us. We are not encouraging independence. And that Taiwan makes its own decisions. So Biden said that the communication is very important. And although there were no big breakthroughs out of this summit, and experts said, to be fair, there really are no quick fixes. But President Biden has said that communication and one-on-one communication with President Xi is crucial because it gives them the chance to put up guardrails to prevent some simmering hostilities from veering into open and even possibly military conflict, which neither sides wants. And I think China was initially disappointed because they expected perhaps, as Nancy said, for the U.S. to remove tariffs and export controls and to back off on human rights issues with the Uyghurs and other things, and that hasn't happened. But both sides, I think, agree to communicate more regularly, and COVID allows to have an in-person summit. Nancy, did you want to add anything to that? Of course, human rights did come up, which Cindy alluded to. And, you know, in the White House briefing after the meeting, a senior White House official said the president was quite clear and candid with the range of human rights concerns and broader concerns about, you know, China trying to reshape what he called the rules of the road. So the White House says President Biden did call China out on human rights violations. It's not clear, though, what kind of wording he used, how strong the words he used were. Another issue that observers are going to be watching is the contentious issue of whether the United States will send White House envoys to the Beijing Winter Olympics in February. But of course, this issue did not come up during this meeting, so we will continue to watch developments on this as well. Well, let's move on to our next topic. And President Biden signed a bipartisan $1 trillion infrastructure bill into law, calling it a blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America. He and top officials in the administration are hitting the road to promote the infrastructure plan. So, Nancy, how do Americans feel about this bill or view the bill? I think they don't know what's in it, and that's why approval ratings haven't been as high as the White House would like, and that's also why President Biden and other administration officials are going to travel across the country to try to promote it, you know, going to a bridge and pointing at it and saying, look, this bridge that you drive across every day, this will be repaired or replaced with infrastructure money. This is a good thing. 
looking at this situation and repairing and improving infrastructure, it takes time, years even. But President Biden highlighted that jobs that don't require a college education will be created by this bill. So is Biden's view a shift of direction from other Democrat presidents who promoted getting a college education, such as President Obama and President Clinton? Perhaps, but I think President Biden is trying to sell this as being good for the economy. And one way it will be good for the economy is to create jobs. I interviewed some folks from a trade group called the American Road and Transportation Builders Association. They say there are more than 220,000 U.S. bridges that need major repair work or should be replaced across the country. That's about a third of all U.S. bridges. And also, you know, millions of miles of roadway are going to be repaired in this bill. Lead pipes, lead water pipes will be replaced. A lot of construction jobs are going to be created to do that work. Yes, absolutely. And Democrats, they say they want to get the Build Back Better legislation passed this year, even if that means working into the holidays or beyond, when Congress typically tries to take a weeks-long break. And some economists say the bill will increase inflation. Other economists say it will not. So how can economists be so different on this issue? Well, you know, we're in such unprecedented times. The pandemic has really upended even the Federal Reserve's predictions for inflation because people were buying a lot more in goods, ordering things on Amazon, which I'm guilty of, and not using as many services, not going out to restaurants, for example. And that really skewed the price of goods upward, created inflation. And then also we have problems with the supply chain, which is also creating inflation. So it's just really hard to figure out which way this economy is going to go. Absolutely. And this bill is not expected to come to the Senate floor until at least after the Thanksgiving holiday. But it's going to be facing some competition on a crowded schedule. There are other bills on the table, including a move to avert a government shutdown in the coming weeks. So can they get this done? Yeah, I'd really like to just take December off, Kim, (laughs) because there are so many horrible things that could happen all at once. The government could run out of money and shut down if Congress doesn't pass a budget or a continuing resolution to keep the government going. The government could exceed the debt limit if Congress doesn't raise it or suspend it. And then we'd have a horrible crisis on our hands. And then, yes, we have this Build Back Better bill that uh, the House is supposedly going to be voting on soon and send over to the Senate. This is the massive uh, nearly $2 trillion uh, social spending and environmental spending bill. There are a number of snags right now. The Congressional Budget Office has to figure out and give the House a figure as to how much this bill could add to the deficit and how much of it would be paid for. After that, we're going to get a vote. But then it goes to the Senate, and who knows what's going to happen there. Exactly. And you have mentioned inflation, and President Biden stated inflation is the highest it has been in 30 years. And it is also affecting, as we mentioned, the president's poll numbers, and it's become a political issue as well. We know that the COVID-19 pandemic is a contributing factor to this. So what are some other things causing the rise in prices? Supply chain is a big one. The fact that a lot of companies can't find workers to hire, or if they do find workers, they have to increase their wages. And the Federal Reserve has done surveys, and the companies 
say, majority of them say they are passing those wage hikes right along to consumers. They're raising their prices in order to pay their workers more. So that's one source of inflation. But also, you know, what we've been talking about, the problems with the supply chain and uh, the fact that there's just so much demand from consumers still stuck at home, many of them buying things from Amazon. Looking at inflation from the Biden administration's perspective, how is it affecting his presidency and how will inflation affect the midterm elections? Well, the midterms are, what, a year off. And the Federal Reserve keeps saying inflation is transitory. It's not going to continue forever. But yeah, if it doesn't settle down in the next year, voters will be very angry because inflation really hits you in the face as you drive past the gas station you usually go to and you see it that gas is more than $4 a gallon, which is a lot in the U.S., you get angry. Also, the price of food in the supermarket is up. The latest report from the Labor Department is saying, you know, the price of beef rose quite a bit, about 3% in the month of October over the past year. The price of gasoline is up about 6% over the same time last year. Same thing for natural gas. And heating oil prices are going up just as winter is coming. Yes, and I also wanted to bring up that many states in the Midwestern part of the United States are being hit the hardest by inflation, especially lower income families and farmers. And in listening to some Midwesterners, they say Americans on both the East and West coasts do not understand what they're going through. So why are Midwesterners feeling inflation more than everyone else? I don't know that they're feeling it more. They might be talking about it more, but this is really across the country. Although gas prices, for example, will fluctuate depending on, for example, if a refiner has to add biofuels to the mix in order to sell gas in a certain state, that might increase the price. So that might be happening in the Midwest, but they might just be more vocal about it than everyone else. Right. Nancy, if I can jump in, just among all these very serious concerns for the Biden administration, I would just like to point out that it it was a big and much needed win this week and a a celebration with some 800 guests in front of the White House. And Biden included Republicans because people had said in this climate that we have in Washington, so divisive and so hostile and that it wouldn't be possible to get bipartisan agreement. And Biden did it. And he invited some of the Republicans. Some of them didn't come because they facing repercussions from their own party for voting for the bill, but some of them did come. And uh, Biden did say, you know, I, I said it would be possible. And I said that we all needed to work together. So I think for President Biden and his administration and for Democrats, and hopefully for all Americans considering uh, the, the state of infrastructure, it was a much needed win. Yes, thanks, Cindy. That's a good point. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we come back, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken aims to underscore the depth of U.S. relationships with African partners. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype. Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent. And Nancy Marshall-Genzer, Senior Reporter for Marketplace. 
Well, Cindy, Secretary Blinken began his Africa trip in Nairobi and talked with Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta about the crisis in Ethiopia. So what took place in this conversation? Right, Kim. Well, Ethiopia is going to be a main issue at all three of Secretary Blinken's stop on this first in-person trip to Africa. And he has held a, a joint press conference in Kenya. And again, Secretary Blinken said that the U.S. is very concerned about the escalating violence in Ethiopia, the fighting throughout the country. The UN now says that some 1,000 people have been detained since Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy declared a state of emergency a little over a week ago, and most of those are ethnic Tigrayans. And Secretary Blinken was also asked about that, asked about Prime Minister Abiy's legitimacy and asked about a potential designation of genocide for the northern Tigray region. And Blinken said that we're focused on the facts, we're focused on the law, and he says we have seen that atrocities have been committed, and regardless of what we call it, it needs to stop. Now, Kenya's foreign minister, Omamo, had a bit more of an optimistic view, saying that Kenya views Ethiopia as a friend and neighbor, and he said friends and neighbors believe in the potential of their neighbors. So there's some rumors. I mean, there's a big diplomatic push with the African Union and with Kenyan officials shuttling back and forth, even the president and the U.S. Uh, special envoy, Jeffrey Feltman, shuffling back and forth between Addis and Nairobi. There's a big push to get a ceasefire, but it seems that we're not there yet. Yes, and there's still the concern of a civil war possibly occurring, and some recent studies done on civil wars in countries show that they are lasting as long as 20 years in many cases, and this would be devastating not only for Ethiopia, but for the entire continent. So uh, has there been any talk of sending U.S. troops into Ethiopia? No, that is basically has ruled out. There's no talk of sending troops in. There is a diplomatic effort, and this whole Africa trip, the U.S. is saying we want to promote African solutions to African problems. Also, the African Union representative, Obasanjo, has also been shuttling back and forth and has been very instrumental. And Secretary Blinken has said over and over again, you know, we are working closely with Mr. Obasanjo. So, the U.S. is trying to get a regional solution here, and the U.S. is concerned because one of the big goals of the Biden administration is democratization, and we've seen several coups this year in Africa, including in Sudan, which is also, the, you know, the Blinken administration has been involved in diplomacy there to try to get things back on course to a transition to a civilian rule. So there are big challenges, and we are expecting during the trip a speech by Secretary Blinken laying out U.S. policy towards Africa, and it is focused on tackling problems like COVID and climate change and this issue of democratization together. Well, that also brings me up to my next question. That was going to be, what is the administration's vision for Africa? So as you pointed out, I guess Blinken will lay a lot of that out in his talk. Nancy, did you want to jump in and add on this? Yeah, one thing I, I thought was really interesting is the day after Blinken landed in Africa, there was a briefing at the State Department at which State Department officials were urging U.S. citizens to leave 
Ethiopia immediately and saying, we are not going to have any kind of a military airlift like we did in Afghanistan. You need to get out of there now. And I think that is the strongest statement they could make about what they think is going to happen. Very good points. Excellent. Thank you. Well, let's get in our last topic. Longtime Trump ally Steve Bannon appeared before a judge to face criminal contempt charges for defying a subpoena from Congress January 6th committee, then declared combatively outside court that he was taking on the Biden's regime and fighting the charges. He was indicted last Friday on two federal counts of criminal contempt, one for refusing to appear for a congressional deposition and the other for refusing to provide documents in response to the committee's subpoena. So is this investigation so far going the way the committee intends it to? Not necessarily. And Bannon appears to be enjoying himself. He's getting a lot of publicity, which is what he wanted. He was met with a lot of TV cameras when he went to turn himself in at the FBI earlier this week. But these are serious charges that he's facing. I mean, each count carries a minimum of 30 days and a maximum of one year in jail and a fine of up to $100,000. So this could be a very expensive public relations effort for him. That's a really good point. And also civil rights attorney David Schoen decried the Justice Department's decision to prosecute Bannon, claiming it runs counter to Attorney General Garland's statement of commitment to equal justice under the law. Officials in both Democratic and Republican administrations have been held in contempt by Congress, but criminal indictments for contempt are exceedingly rare. Is this a valid argument? The events that happened January 6th, thank goodness, are also quite rare. And Bannon went on the air on his radio program on January 5th, the day before the insurrection at the Capitol, and he said all hell is going to break loose. And then he also said it's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. It's going to be extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. Bannon also apparently participated in a, a war room that was organized the day before the insurrection at the Willard Hotel in Washington with other allies of former President Trump um, trying to overturn the election. So the question is, you know, was he planning some kind of a coup? What was he doing? Right. And Cindy? Yes, I would agree with Nancy that this is a very rare situation that we have here as the committee on the January 6th is looking into a, an attempt to stop the certification of the winner, Joe Biden, as president for the elections. And we have to remember that was what was going on in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th when we had these armed people storming the Capitol and beating and injuring and even killing police officers. So this is a very, very rare thing that he's being held in criminal contempt. But I would agree that these are very rare circumstances. And some watching it have thought that Bannon has actually gotten very mild treatment, that he was allowed to to have like the weekend and then turn himself in to the FBI. And he was ordered to surrender his passport because we know this is not the first time that Bannon has been indicted. And the last time I believe he was on a Chinese uh, ship with some of his, some wealthy friends. So some are saying he is definitely a flight risk 
and are wondering, you know, why he's getting to use this as basically without bail even and think that he's getting quite light treatment. And and people are also watching because the former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, has also defied a subpoena from the committee. And as long as Donald Trump was president, they couldn't claim executive privilege and, you know, they could just ignore congressional subpoenas. But now there is a new administration and things are different. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up Mark Meadows because both Bannon and Meadows are key witnesses for the committee because they both were in close touch with then President Trump around the time of the January 6th Capitol attack. If the House votes to hold Meadows in contempt, that recommendation would also be sent to the Justice Department for a possible indictment. Well, we will have to end the show on that note. My thanks go to our panelists, Cindy Sane, BOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Nancy Marshall-Genzer, Senior Reporter for Marketplace. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.